but we're gonna jump into God's Word this morning. I've entitled the series in the lead up to Christmas, How to Find Hope at Christmas. And when I refer to Christmas in this way, I'm not referring to the trees and all the other traditions, have nothing against that. I'm referring to what is theologically called the Advent, the coming of Christ. And why we can really find hope in just retelling and reminding ourselves of the stories. And the focus in the series is going to be played out in some of the characters who encountered Jesus. And we're going to be spending some time out of Luke's Gospel today. And if you're unfamiliar with the Gospel of Luke, he he wrote it as an orderly account and almost like an investigative journalist went and interviewed eyewitnesses and then put it in a sequential order in order to encourage people that they could actually trust the authenticity and the truth of the story of Jesus and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I talked about finding hope at Christmas and the hope of Christmas, the hope of Christ coming, the hope that comes out through the incarnation is not a trite expression, but it's actually grounded in the fact that when he stepped into the world, the world was chaotic, painful, oppressive. And could we say in many ways, not that different to things that are going on in our world. So it's about hope in the midst of crisis, in the midst of pain, in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of prayers that have seemed to be not heard by God. It's in that setting that we tell the story or read the story of these characters who encountered the Christ story, the Christ event. When uh, Luke wrote his gospel, more than 400 years have passed between the last prophet who spoke, Malachi. And they often called the silent years. God was still up to something, but the issue was there was no new prophecy from God, either of judgment or of encouragement. There were no kings. Israel experienced a brief period of freedom, but there were multiple oppressors that took them into captivity. There were no deliverers. And most of God's people were scattered through the nations that had conquered them. A remnant had come back under Zechariah, oh, sorry, Zerubbabel, sorry, and Nehemiah, then only to be squashed by Rome under the boot of Rome when the Christ event, that first Christmas, began to unfold. But the wonderful thing is that Malachi prophesied, yes, there were going to be these times of difficulties, and he was really echoing everything that the other prophets had said. And that there would be darkness and difficulty for those people of God at that time. But there was hope coming. And Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2 says this, But you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. So into this darkness, there's this prophetic declaration of hope. You who fear my name, God says, the son of righteousness, literally it can be translated. There is going to be an extraordinary sunrise that will shatter the darkness. That will bring light and therefore hope into your circumstance. And Luke doesn't forget that promise. 
And he picks up on it because in Luke 1, verse 78 to 79, he's recording Zechariah, and that's the character we're going to look at this morning. Zechariah's declaration, he says, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine on those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. And he says, the sunrise has come. God has turned up. The darkness has to flee. And there's peace coming. There's hope coming. There's opportunity coming because Christ has come. And really, it's an incredible thing because great plans had been laid by God from eternity past, are now beginning to be activated with a priest, Zechariah, whose story we're going to touch on, shepherds in the field, uh, people traveling long distance, the Magi, uh, Joseph and Mary having to leave their hometown to go to... where they need to be counted in the census in Bethlehem. Angels are scurrying around and they're busy preparing for the coming dawn. The sunrise from on high will visit us and shine on those who sit in darkness, the shadow of death and to guide our feet in the way of peace. And there may be people here, I guess just about every one of us in some way or other over the last few years have felt we've been living under some kind of shadow. And maybe the shadow that covers your life is not directly connected to the COVID experience. Maybe there's something else going on. And there's just the shadow through relationships, through sickness, through financial pressure, some other thing. And God is saying, no, the sunrise is coming. The peace is coming. God's going to guide your feet in the way of peace. And really, even though the story of Zechariah is quite a way out from the birth of Jesus. It's part of the lead up. It's part of the narrative that Luke tells us. This is how God began to put these plans together or pull the plans together, unleash the angels. And Luke's narrative of the first Christmas, the Advent, the Christ event, begins to be woven into the lives of people who've experienced heartache. In some instances, deep disappointment. Who'd been caught up in the general suffering of what it meant to live under the heel of Rome. But Luke tells through every single character that's woven into the Christ event. He tells of hope, of peace, of joy at the coming of the Messiah. And his first eyewitnesses are Zechariah and Elizabeth, an elderly couple, both with quite prestigious uh, genealogy back to Aaron the high priest. And I'm going to read the passage. It's 20 verses. Don't normally read that much, but it is church, so I think it's all right. (laughs) In the same time of King Herod of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. 
Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Let me just comment on that. Around this time, there's 20,000 priests and they can't all serve. There are about 830 needed in the temple. There was a pretty good volunteer team going on there. And uh, so you, your division was twice a year for eight days you served. And if you were fortunate within that, you may be assigned a special assignment like he was to light the incense at the altar of incense and is chosen by Lot. And it seems so random, but in all of this, the hand of God is working to bring him into a place for him and his wife Elizabeth to experience a miracle. At the time for the burning of the incense, verse 10, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John because he will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born." And he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before the Lord in the power, the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and their disobedient to the wisdom of righteousness and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. He uses some wisdom. He doesn't call her old. The angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. And when his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. And she said, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown favour and taken away my disgrace among the people. What an incredible story. But I want you to notice it begins with a couple who are experiencing a distressing circumstance. It's not a short-term thing. It has been going on as long as they've been married. 
And like many Old Testament characters or biblical characters, Zechariah and Elizabeth have meaningful names. Zechariah's name means the Lord remembers. And Elizabeth means the God of my oath or my God is an absolutely faithful one. And I wonder if you can almost sense the irony in this in one way. They've been praying for a child and now entering into old age, they are still childless. And yet every time they call each other's name, Zachariah, it's the echo, the Lord remembers. But the question is, has he even heard me? Elizabeth, the name called, my God is absolutely Faithful, But where is he in our pain, in our deep disappointment? And what's made even more dramatic in this is verse 6 and 7. says, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, but they were childless. But they were childless. The impressive thing I think about Zechariah and Elizabeth that even though they hadn't witnessed anything miraculous to this point, that they still committed to living faithful, godly lives before God. They still turn up. He's still willing to serve. They're willing to deal with the situation. And I'm sure there were times that their heart broke openly with tears. And that whole thing of... Luke, identifying them as righteous and devout, but that they don't have any children, is to make a point. Because in any culture, infertility is an aching disappointment. For some, an almost unbearable distress. But in ancient Hebrew culture, barrenness was considered a disgrace or punishment from God. And that's why Luke says, no, no, don't put something on them that others have put on them because it's just not true. God was up to something else. All their faithfulness seemingly goes unrewarded and they still have this big hole, this big problem. And I want to encourage those, whether related to what we talked about or some other disappointment some other point of pain, some other point of suffering, it actually makes you a candidate for a miracle. You don't need a miracle if you don't have a problem. And that's part of what I think this story is telling us. Yeah, there was pain in their lives. They'd actually lived with it for a long time. And maybe they'd even stopped praying. I'm not sure. Maybe they'd kind of given up. Maybe they'd claimed enough times we could be the new Abraham and Sarah, but it almost seemed like an echo in their hearts. But in the middle of that is this unplanned interruption. Zachariah's division was on duty. He was serving as a priest before God. He'd been chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood, and to go into the temple of the Lord to burn incense. So out of these 830, just randomly happened to be on this week of service, because that was his division amongst the 20,000 priests that there were, he gets chosen 
to go into the outer court and burn incense, or the inner court, not, but not the Holy of Holies. It's once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for him. The altar of incense symbolizes prayers and worship being lifted to God. How interesting is that? But compared to what God was about to do, everything in the past would almost pale into insignificance. One of the things that I've observed, and I've kind of touched on this, that despite their pain, despite their frustration, despite all that they're dealing with, they keep on serving. They keep on trusting. They keep on being, as the Bible says, faithful and devout. And in the serving, God turns up. And it's amazing how often God turns up when people are busy going about their everyday tasks. Moses and David encountered God tending sheep. Gideon was threshing wheat while hiding from the enemy. Peter and his partners were mending nets when Jesus called them. Mary, whose story we'll touch in a few weeks' time, was actually just going about her daily chores and suddenly God turns up. And it must have been rather terrifying. You're lighting incense in the inner court at the, the, the table of incense and suddenly you're aware of a presence. Nobody else should be there, but he's there. And the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And I think there's some people here that I want to speak that over, that there's an anxiety, there's a fear touching your life. And God would say to you this morning, do not be afraid. It's one of the most common phrases that comes from angelic visitations or from God himself when he speaks into our lives. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son and you are to call him John. There's three things and there's so much richness. I wrestled with this to just refine it a little bit, to come down a few key things that every one of us could walk away with. And I've already highlighted one, but just want to mention it again. Learn to live life faithfully regardless of the circumstances. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. And it's often the unanswered prayer, the struggle with that, the frustration with that. It's often fear itself that begins to drive us away from intimacy of relationship with Jesus. And the question is, do we continue to live faithfully for God when there's no fanfare? when nobody's watching, or it seems like, as must have been for Zachariah and Elizabeth, there's not much happening in the future. And yet here are two servants who continued to live faithfully. Proverbs 3 and verse 3 to 4 says this, Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck, Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man or people. Just listen to those words. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And then you will win favor. And then you will win favor. 
and a good name in the sight of God and man. The second thing is just to encourage us to pray anyway. Uh, when the angel says to him, your prayer has been answered. I don't know if Zechariah and Elizabeth are still praying about a son. I mean, it acknowledges that they were getting old and she was heading that way as well. And maybe they'd given up praying, but they had prayed. And I want to encourage us that really praying is about what shapes our lives. Yes, God answers prayers, not always in the way we want or in the way we advised Him while we were praying. But God hears and answers our prayer. And after years of heartfelt prayer, sometimes we can give up because of this thing called disappointment. And almost go, well, what's the point? Well, the point is the relationship with God. It's a way of still walking with Jesus. And that's why week in and week out, we, we refer to our devotional things and we invite the whole church to sharing. And if you've got another way of doing it, that's great. But it's about actually continuing to talk to Jesus and let him talk to you through his word. That, that's what it's about. And so standing at the altar, his prayer is not recorded specifically, but the angel says, God heard your prayer. God remembered your prayer. Psalm 18 and verse 6. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried out to my God for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. There's so much in that statement, but first I want you to notice is not talking about an earthly temple. When David writes as the temple hasn't been built, in fact, the tabernacle is still in disarray. It's not really much of anything at all when David prays this. And then David, this man of God, this call, person called of God, could find himself in a place of distress. In distress, I cried to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. And from his temple, a heavenly temple, he heard my voice and my cry came before him into his ears. The childlessness of Zechariah and Elizabeth was not unknown to God, nor had their prayers been unheard or forgotten by God. They came to his ear. And I want to encourage each and every one of us because I think we can all identify with Zechariah and Elizabeth that there are some prayers that maybe we've given up on. Some prayers that actually when we think about them cause more pain than anything else or disappointment in our hearts. But my encouragement it is keep coming back to God. In your distress, he hears your cry. He hears your cry for help. It ascends to the temple where we have a great high priest who intercedes on our behalf. Your prayer, while seemingly unanswered, is not unheard by God. The third thing, and kind of this is the crunch point 
for the story of Zechariah. There's no more points after this. I had plenty, but there's no more, let me tell you. Let me read the passage, Zechariah 1, 18 to 20. Zechariah asked the angel, uh, excuse me, angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm looking at my circumstances, my situation. I'm an old man and don't want to call my wife old, but she's well along in the years. And I love Gabriel's indignation. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. I kind of empathize with Zechariah. I kind of think his response is a response that probably most of us would have had if we were in his circumstance. But the response of Gabriel, while seemingly harsh, is actually to make a point that I believe is so powerful for each and every one of us. Zechariah doubted, a very human thing to do. Ask for more evidence. Others have done it. But Gabriel is so unimpressed. He says, no, hey, excuse me. I'm one of the archangels. Where I normally stand, he's not at the altar of incense here. I normally stand in the presence of God and you are going to question my integrity. You're going to question what I've got to say to you. You're going to doubt that I've come from God. You're going to doubt God's promise. Well, in that case, if you can't confess God's promise, I will shut your mouth so you can't confess your unbelief. I want to read a passage in Mark 11, 22 to 24. And to be honest, over all the years, I struggle a bit with this. I love it, but I struggle with it. Jesus, in a certain circumstance, says to the disciples, have faith in God. Then he says, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you receive it and it will be yours. It's an enormous promise, but I think for most of us, it's also an incredibly challenging promise. But after all these years, I finally gained a little insight that I believe will be liberating and empowering for each and every one of us. Jesus highlights in this passage the importance of saying, not just believing. I want you to catch this. He emphasizes the importance of not just believing, but saying something. And perhaps we find it to walk in hard in faith because we're not confessing God's word enough because we're not sure if we believe it yet. Maybe none of you have that problem. I alone. But there's times where, to be honest, the promises of God feel like sawdust in my mouth. There's times when feeling disappointed or frustrated or tired or whatever 
I find it hard to summon the energy even to speak God's promises into a situation, let alone to believe them. And there's a powerful key here, is the saying of them is part of the process that gets us to believe in them. And that's why I think Zachariah's mouth was shut by Gabriel. It's out of compassion for him as much as anything else. But he says, Zachariah, I don't need your doubts and fears to undo this miracle. That's about to happen for you and for your wife. You see, this is how God actually built Abram's faith. And I want to illustrate, not go off on a wild tangent. God changes Abram's name to Abraham. Abram means proud or high father. Abraham means father of many nations. And I want you to catch something. It took a long time before Isaac came. But for a long time before Isaac came, every time Sarah called Abraham, she's saying, Father of nations, come here. Take the rubbish out, mow the lawn, whatever she told him to do. (laughs) Whenever Abraham met somebody, they go, what's your name? Well, I'm the father of nations. That God is putting something in his mouth and in Sarah's mouth, a declaration about the promise that had been given. And in Genesis 17, 5, it says, no longer will you be called Abraham, but you will be called Abraham for I will make you a father of nations. And it's this constant declaration added to the promise of God that adds something and it becomes a point at which if you're reading Romans chapter four, Abraham is now called the father of faith. The one who kind of first really discovered how faith works. And we should learn something from that. And my encouragement, not for this to be a weighty condemnation on you, but my encouragement is do not give voice to your fears, give voice to your faith. And in a way, speaking the promises puts your faith into action. It's one of the first steps to beginning to step into it. And even if it feels odd in your mouth, even if your heart is still going, I'm not sure. God, I believe on the authority of a word. I believe the power of your promises. And no matter what I feel, I'm going to speak your promise into my circumstance. I'm going to speak that prophetic word I got to have a number of years ago or recently. I'm going to start speaking that into my life and over my life and over my circumstances. In Romans 10 and verse 8, it says, what does it say? And Paul is speaking about faith. He says, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. And I want you to catch something here. He doesn't say it's in your heart and then in your mouth. He actually puts mouth first. He says it's in your mouth. Yeah, it's got to get into your heart. But one of the ways to get God's promise into your heart is to keep it in your mouth. Is to keep it in your mouth. 
is to keep it in your mouth.